This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. He has a lot of great ideas. He's not a stupid man. He's worth $9 billion. I feel like our country is going down the drain. He's actually a very intelligent man who cares deeply about America. There is no question that this is the person who will go to Washington, D.C. and be able to absolutely turn the place around. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who doesn't know how to lie with statistics, so he just makes them up instead, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. So we're all back in a cold sweat thanks to James Comey, the FBI director, who on Friday released a letter to Congress saying he wanted to review some new information pertinent to the investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. Three days later, Comey's decision looks pretty terrible. No one's yet examined the new emails, which were found on a device belonging to Anthony Weiner, the subject of a totally separate investigation. Without any reason to think the new information is in any way meaningful, the announcement looks like a highly partisan October surprise. It pretty clearly violated the Justice Department's guidelines for how to handle politically sensitive investigations around election time. But I want to throw some caution on the idea that this was a partisan intervention in the election. If you look historically at the FBI, it's a bureaucracy that cares about its own image first and law enforcement second. From J. Edgar Hoover to Louis Free, what the FBI and its directors always seem to care most about is how they look in public. Comey fits squarely into that tradition. He's upset about being criticized by Republicans in Congress and outside of Congress, for going soft on Hillary Clinton. So he's erring in the other direction to make sure nobody can make that accusation when they find out some Clinton emails showed up on one of Anthony Weiner's appliances. Acting in response to unwarranted, politicized accusations of bias to try to make yourself look good is the definition of bad legal judgment. But let's be honest, it's what the FBI, our nation's foremost PR agency, has always done. On today's show, what's he building in there? I'm talking about Trump's vast data operation, housed across from a Lazy Boy furniture gallery on Interstate 410 in San Antonio. It's called Project Alamo, and I'll be back to talk to the reporter who figured out how Trump's using it to take over the Republican Party at its own expense right after we do the tweets. Wow. Twitter, Google, and Facebook are burying the F. 
FBI criminal investigation of Clinton. Very dishonest media. Hillary and the Dems loved and praised FBI Director Comey just a few days ago. Original evidence was overwhelming. Should not have delayed. We are now leading in many polls, and many of these were taken before the criminal investigation announced on Friday. Great in states. We must not let hashtag crooked Hillary take her criminal scheme into the Oval Office. Hashtag drain the swamp. Just out, Neera Tandon, Hillary Clinton advisor, said, quote, Israel is depressing. I think Israel is inspiring. If my people said the things about me that Podesta and Hillary's people said about her, I would fire them out of self-respect. Bad instincts. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. My guest today is Joshua Green of Bloomberg Businessweek. He has a great story in the new issue that he wrote with Sasha Eisenberg, and it's called Inside Trump's Big League Data Operation with Days to Go. Josh, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Um, so this is a, you, you took a dive into this, this world that's actually operates out of San Antonio, but just sort of tell us a little bit about what this operation is, who's Brad Parscall, and what are they doing in San Antonio? Well, this is, this is the sort of hidden unknown side of the Trump campaign. Um, you know, but over the last couple of months, talking to Trump people, a number of their top guys, Steve Bannon, notable among them, had, had sort of you know, boasted here and there that they really have this big data operation and a ground game that nobody knows about. You know, and so over the course of, of, of weeks and, and, and months, I, I sort of lobbied to let them, you know, open the kimono and let us down there. And the Trump people, you know, despite the public impression that they're kind of buffoons and, you know, hapless, um, are, are very proud of, of what they built down there. So what it is, is essentially it is a, a you know, modern presidential campaign data operation with uh, over 100 people, some employees, some contractors, but they have, you know, real data scientists from this company, Cambridge Analytica, which is a firm that does a lot of kind of data work in right-wing circles. And I think they viewed this as an opportunity to, um, you know, throw back in the face of the naysayers the idea that the campaign was really just Trump and his Twitter feed. And so they let Sasha and I come down and really walked us through uh, a shocking amount of what they're doing down there, not just sort of, you know, broad brush, you know, here's our 
data center and here's our attack room and this and that. But I mean, they shared polling and strategy and ads and pretty much anything we wanted. And the upshot of this is that we discovered this, this really is sort of the ground zero of the Trump campaign. It's not, it's not the few dozen folks in Trump Tower. Everything is being filtered through San Antonio. And this is what they're doing instead of a kind of conventional get out the vote campaign, which everyone's remarked that they don't have. Instead, they have this data operation. But it's different, right? It's, it's less like get all the Republicans to the polls and more about cultivating this hardcore base of people who are donors and also their core supporters. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the, the wild thing about the Trump campaign is there are so many of the big things that a presidential campaign is supposed to do that they're not really doing, right? One is the large dollar fundraisers you'd see from a Hillary Clinton or a Mitt Romney, and that's because Trump himself just can't be bothered to go out and sort of ask people for money, so they're not really doing that. Um, the the ground operation, you know, the big get out the vote operation, they're, they're, they're kind of outsourcing that to the RNC. And they're not, as we know, doing big kind of television ad buys. But the one place they really have focused is uh, on building a machine that will bring in small dollar donors. And they've, they've actually done that quite well. I was talking to some Bernie tech folks who uh, would never say it on the record, but were quite impressed with what Trump's campaign has been willing to st- or able to stand up over the last kind of three, four months since he locked down the nomination. And that is based down in San Antonio. And the purpose of this is really just to bring in a lot of small dollar donors who, as far as I can tell, are targeted through Facebook ads and and, and essentially kind of spammy digital marketing type uh, gimmicks. Like, you all know, the Facebook ads where you got to kind of click on the dancing monkey, sort of that <laughs> level of things. Because Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, uh, after he won the nomination, kind of went out and quizzed a lot of Silicon Valley marketing types and figured out that this is the fastest, easiest, cheapest way to put together a universe of Trump small-dollar donors. And this is the, it's the new direct mail, but it's it's Facebook instead. Exactly. Yeah. And so you can call this information from all sorts of commercial databases. You can use uh, the RNC's voter file, which Reince Priebus and the folks at the RNC helpfully handed over to the Trump campaign. And essentially, you match characteristics, right? And it's not too hard to imagine who Trump voters are. They tend to be you know, white, lacking a college education. They have certain characteristics. So they can basically go into these commercial and political databases and, and essentially match the characteristics of their voters with the people they find in these files and do a pretty good job of guessing and then reaching people who are potential Trump supporters and donors. Uh, And they've actually been very effective at doing this. When we were there, they had compiled a list of about 12 million emails and 2.5 million uh, small-dollar donors who together had produced about $230, $240 million for the Trump campaign just since June. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, if Slate wanted to find more readers on Facebook, it's exactly the same thing we'd do. We we would take the people who like Slate or follow Slate and get look at people with a lookalike profile and target them. But instead of trying to get them to to read Slate articles, Trump's trying to get them to give money and, and support his campaign. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the, the clever sort of diabolical thing he has done here, though, is he has very carefully 
paid for this using Donald J. Trump campaign funds, which means that Trump's campaign will own this list going forward, regardless of whether he wins or loses. So not only uh, has he amassed a group of donors who are essentially giving him the money to fuel his presidential campaign, but he also has this distinct audience that he can now take with him that could serve as the audience for a Trump TV, or as we speculate in the piece, could you know form the basis of a 2020 presidential run, or more likely some combination of the two, a kind of an American-style UKIP where Trump can both you know grift and profit off these supporters of his and still kind of keep his name in the media and have a role and an influence in politics. Now, did he figure out basically how to swallow the RNC's database? I mean, they they own that. Does he now effectively have all of the RNC's names and and donor lists and so on? You know, he he, he does, and and the reason he does is because after the 2012 election, you know, Reince Priebus and a lot of Republicans decided they had been beaten uh, because Democrats and Obama had a superior data operation. So Priebus, having no idea that Trump would one day be the nominee set off to raise a lot of money. And over the course of four years, he built a $100 million data operation housed within the RNC with the idea being that when the time came and there was a Republican nominee, he could essentially hand this over. And then that nominee would be in better position than Mitt Romney was to beat the Democrat in 2016. The unfortunate thing for previous, I don't think anyone expected it to be Trump, but when the day arrived and Trump was the nominee, Priebus really had no choice but to kind of hand over this incredibly valuable data. And so top RNC officials kind of flew down and met with uh, Brad Parscale, who's one of the guys we profile in the piece, who's Trump's digital director, who essentially took all this RNC data, pulled it into the Trump campaign, and added their own you know, commercial data and fundraising data and, you know, text message data that they get from supporters to build this larger entity that is the universe of people who are Trump supporters and have given money to Trump. So Rens Priebus basically gave a $100 million contribution to Trump TV in terms of his, with the work that, that went into building his list, which has now been absorbed by Trump and can be used after the campaign for commercial purposes, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, Trump owns this list and the RNC data is a big component of what he owns. So after the election, you know, in the same way that Mitt Romney has a list, it's it's run by this company Targeted Victory and they tend to do more traditional things. They'll rent out the list to uh, Republican candidates they support, right? So if you gave Romney a donation in 2012, you may well get an email from Paul Ryan saying, hey, chip in a hundred bucks to help me, you know, preserve the Republican sentiment or House majority, something like that. Trump, as we all know, is, is, is a little different than, than your typical Republican politician. So he could, he could certainly do that. Or he could uh, use it as the basis for Trump TV, or he could do something along the lines of some of the shadier Republican presidential candidates like Mike Huckabee and Herman Cain and sell like bogus diabetes cures or gold <laughs> coins or, or really whatever he wants to do. He can license it in, in just about any way that he, he chooses. I mean, all of the above, right? So if you gave $5 to Mitt Romney, you can expect to be solicited for various Trump shakedowns. You can expect he's going to license the list to, you know, the you, you describe it as the potential UKIP faction, but who's ever representing the kind of populist wing of the party. And you're going to be hearing from him about this TV network that he might well start with Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner after the, he loses the election. 
Yeah, I mean, the most obvious thing for him to do would be to sell or license this list to Bannon and Breitbart, because they already have um, a, you know, a fairly large global audience of kind of right-wing populist Trump-type people. And, and they have a kind of infrastructure that Trump could benefit from and potentially profit from. And we know they're thinking about this because, you know, in the reporting for this story, I, I spoke to people in and around the Trump family who have said, you know, Jared Kushner has is, is been approached by five media companies that are, that are maybe interested in doing something. Um, you know, there have been all sorts of stories in the media sort of speculating or reporting bits and pieces of how this, how this new thing might come together. But basically, they, they are already laying the groundwork for what comes after a Trump loss because they have, I mean, they have built this incredibly valuable list, this property, which if you talk to uh, Republican digital strategists, they'll tell you they, they generally value uh, supporters' email address at anywhere between 3 and $8. And given the size of Trump's list, that means the thing that he's built could be worth as much as $112 million. So they're already thinking about, you know, how can we profit from this after the election? Isn't rents like, could I have my data back, please? Yeah. I'm sure if there was some way he could claw it back, he, he, he would, or, or who, who knows, maybe he wouldn't. I mean, he's been such a willing Trump functionary at every step in the process, pretty much from the get-go. Maybe he wouldn't try and claw it back. But this certainly is not what RNC donors envisioned when they were writing these million-dollar checks to Priebus and the RNC over the last four years. The idea not only that it would wind up with Trump, but that it might eventually serve as the basis for a splinter faction of populist Republicans who are now going to kind of, you know, turn around and eat the establishment Republican Party and go after Paul Ryan and probably Priebus himself, you know, everybody who has been selflessly <laughs> helping, helping the Trump campaign get to where it is today. Right. I mean, that's not a remote possibility. That's the likely scenario. It, it, it is almost certain. I mean, I, I talked to Steve Bannon, Trump's campaign CEO, who is the uh, on-leave head of Breitbart News Network, who essentially said as much on the record to me in the piece. said, you know, Trump has, has used this to build a pipeline to his people and his ever-expanding list of followers. And that is going to carry forward after the election, regardless of whether we're in the White House or not in the White House. But, but the focus is on kind of expanding and propagating this global right-wing populist uprising that Bannon believes uh, we're, we're in the midst of and that the Trump campaign is a part of. I mean, to be totally cynical about it, you know, maybe Trump is a business genius after all. He's put very little of his own money in this campaign, and he's coming out of it with this asset, which you said might have a minimum value of over $100 million, which he can license and use, and it can be the basis of his business. He doesn't actually build anything anymore. He's, he's, he has a licensing operation with his name, and he just built the most valuable possible commodity for a licensing business, which is a huge database. I I look at it differently. I mean, if you look at the business Trump had going into this election, you know, gold-plated hotels and a lot of rich people, uh, you know, really did pay a lot of money to stay in his fancy hotels and go to his golf course. I know a sommelier here in D.C. who actually says Trump's wine is really good. You know, he, he was I, I, I tried it. It's, it's, I got to I got to I got to stop you right there, Josh. We had a tasting of it. It was it was abominable. But go on. Well, 
the guy told me his <laughs> sparkling rosé is actually quite good. The difficulty Trump has in D.C. is that his name is considered so déclassé that, like, really nice restaurants don't want to put it on the menu. Right. But, you know, the, the, the snobby Washingtonians notwithstanding, Trump's brand, his public image, really was this kind of, you know, gold-plated billionaire, yada, yada, yada. That now has been completely poisoned based on his campaign. So I don't, I don't, I don't right. think it's necessarily a business genius. I think what it is, what you're seeing is that Trump has, uh, you know, this, this kind of innate characteristic desire, maybe even subconsciously, just to kind of exploit and grift whoever he happens to be in business with. Well, right now he's in business with the Republican Party, and we can all see what's happening. He has <laughs> built this list. You know, going forward, he, he is going to, to, to profit from that list. He's going to have a different business profile coming out of this election than he had coming in, certainly. I mean, you already see nobody staying in his hotels in D.C. You know, all the celebrity chefs who worked at his restaurant have kind of abandoned him. His new line of hotels for millennials is not going to bear his name, which, my God, can you imagine the affront that must be to Trump? Yeah. They're going to call it the Scion Hotels instead of, you know, Trump Millennial or whatever they would have called it otherwise. So... I wouldn't call him a genius, but I do think what we're seeing is characteristic Trump in the way he is treating his behavior or his his investors in the way that he is uh, seeking to come out ahead in whatever business situation he happens to find himself in. Right. Rens Priebus got jackrolled, which is what happens when you kind of yeah, totally, you, totally. run business. Trump. <laughs> so, the, you know, the thing that got the most attention in your piece, Josh, was this um, quote from someone on the campaign who said – they have three major voter suppression operations underway. And I was thinking of that uh, over the weekend when this other story broke about Facebook allowing racial targeting. You can you can actually on Facebook advertise so, you, so your ads are not seen by minorities or by African-Americans, which seems like it might be a violation of the Civil Rights Act. But is are those two things connected? Is this targeting Trump's doing – around voter suppression on Facebook and using these capabilities that let you say, I want black people not to see this, I want black people to only see this, and that kind of thing? I, I, th- I think they are connected in a sense. I mean, they're connected in the sense that Facebook enables this kind of targeting. I didn't ask them specifically how it is that they find you know, low-propensity black voters in Florida to kind of target with these, these uh suppression ads. But my impression is that it really isn't too much trouble if you read the ProPublica story about how, you know, Facebook enables people to kind of select by race. You know, that makes sense. So the idea here is that what they're going to try and target, meaning the Trump campaign, are voters who, if they showed up at the polls, would probably vote for Hillary Clinton. But these aren't super motivated, you know, politically active people. And so the Trump campaign felt like if they could find these people and reach them and deliver negative information in kind of a, a, a stealthy way that, that essentially maybe would offend or piss off these black voters and convince them to stay home rather than showing up and, and, and voting for Hillary. I think uh, Trump uh, in some form denied that quote or denied the, the veracity of it. Can you say anything more about who told it to you or what the context was to... to yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. I'm a very senior Trump official, and this is... This is, this is um, just to be clear, nobody has denied that quote. Uh, I think Jason Miller, Trump's uh, communications director, said the person who told it to me wasn't authorized to say it. Okay. <laughs> uh, a couple other people, I think Kellyanne Conway on, on Bloomberg TV, had said, well, you know, that's not, that's not what we think we're doing. But um, 
to be clear, nobody right. has denied that quote, right. and uh, there's a very good reason they can deny it. Uh, a, they're doing it, and B, I mean, this wasn't just some you know unattributed quote out of nowhere. Right. If you read the piece, they actually show us the ads. I mean, they they, they literally showed us a, a, like a South Park style animation of Hillary Clinton using the actual audio clip from Hillary Clinton in 1996, likening uh, African-American males to super predators. Uh, and and Parscale, the digital director, said on, on, on the record, you know, we're targeting black people through Facebook dark posts. These are posts that can't really be seen by the public uh, because we want to control who gets to see this and who doesn't get to see it. Uh, I mean, that is, that is, you know, an on-the-record admission that this is what they're engaged in. So I, I don't think there's really any debate or... Uh, mystery or confusion about what's going on here. It's laid out perfectly clearly in the piece. Hey, Jeff, did you talk to Jared Kushner for this piece? I'm going to, I'm going to stay vague about who I did and didn't talk to for the piece um, and let readers draw their own conclusions. He was, Um, he wasn't quote, he wasn't quoted in the piece. Kushner was not quoted in the piece, although his viewpoint, I think will, will be very clear. He, he, He certainly is a major figure in the piece and he is the guy who kind of conceived of this when Trump won in June was, look, we got to go out and figure out a way to uh, harness this Trump movement, to capture this audience and to profit from them in, in the sense of kind of small dollar donations, uh, and also to figure out, kind of learn and figure out who these guys are so that we can activate them at the polls. Um, but according to, to people I spoke to, Kushner was the guy who realized right at the outset, well, okay, if we pay for this with our own campaign funds, then we own it after the election. And I think that was the clever Trumpian insight um, that makes this whole affair so interesting. I'm just wondering when someone is going to ask Jared Kushner, who is from, I think, an observant Jewish family, how he feels about presiding over the greatest explosion of anti-Semitism in America since the 30s. Well, it's an issue that the Trump folks have been I think somewhat uncomfortable about, you know, they keep, they keep kind of retweeting these anti-Semitic memes and, and, and various other things, but you know, it's not something I've done a lot of reporting on. It wasn't a focus in, in, in the piece. There was no evidence that I saw that they were, you know, doing this stuff intentionally. But, you know, on the other hand, I mean, anybody who's a Trump reporter and on Twitter has certainly, I mean, I'm not even Jewish and I get, I get all sorts of anti-Semitic nonsense blasted at me all day long. So, so it, it, certainly is a, an issue in the campaign. My, my impression is that um, it, it's sort of a byproduct of the type of people that Trump has aroused rather than an intentional campaign strategy. But I, I realize, Josh, it wasn't what your story was about, but when you're talking about his digital operation, it is tied, this phenomenon, as, as people have experienced it, is tied to what he's doing on social media. You know, and I just wonder when. No, and, and, and it totally is. And, and his campaign really, I mean, when, when you step back and look at what he's done, it, it really is a social media campaign all, almost in total. I mean, the, the, the two great avenues for Trump are Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, what, one, of the, one of the fun uh, reporting scenes in this campaign is the lead where I got to go backstage with Trump and his team, including Parscale, the guy who impersonates Trump and runs his Twitter feed during campaigns. And, you know, has this dashboard on his laptop that reaches all 13 million Trump Twitter supporters and, you know, millions and millions of Facebook people and watch Parscale essentially in real time as he's kind of blasting out these messages, but also, you know, retweeting the most kind of ardent and crazy Trump fans, 
many of whom, as we've seen, happen to be white nationalists, anti-Semitic. I mean, you, you can imagine how this sort of thing would work with like a Romney or a Clinton campaign, right? There'd be 42 like <laughs> lawyers and staffers lined up, you know, scrubbing right. to make sure that the tweeter had never so much as had a parking ticket and this and that. Not so in Trump world. It's just this one. It's Brad Parscale uh, in a warehouse in San Antonio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, hey, that looks cool. This guy likes Trump. I'm going to retweet him. Like, screw it. Why not? You know? So basically, the official Twitter feed is almost as irresponsible as Trump's own twi- tweeting from his phone. Totally, totally. There's no difference. There's no difference at all. And I, and I suspect, I could never prove this, that, that some of the more irresponsible stuff probably comes from the two or three Trump lieutenants who have access to his account at certain points and who tend to be uh, even less in, in, inhibited on social media than Trump himself does. But, you know, I guess it'll have to be a mystery who exactly is just <laughs> retweeting the worst of these offenders. But Well, I think Kellyanne Conway said, you know, the best way to tell Trump something is to go on cable news and say it. I mean, in a similar way, it may be that, you know, tweeting something in his name is actually a way to get his attention if you work for his campaign. No, it totally is. I mean, the funny thing is I did, I did a story, of a, a cover story in Business Week in May on Trump and previous kind of this co-story. And I, I had been trying for weeks to get an interview with Trump and email and Hope Hicks. And literally, like one day, I was doing I was doing TV. I did Morning Joe, which is like a big favorite show of Trump. <laughs> and I got off the air and I turned on my phone and a message from Hope saying, "Hey, Mr. Trump, I am Morning Joe. Can you come up on Monday?" And that was the story of how I got my Trump interview. So, yes, definitely the shows and and, and Twitter, I think, are the are, are the two ways to get Trump's attention. All right, I've been speaking to Joshua Green of Bloomberg Business Week. Read his excellent story on Trump's big league data operation, which he wrote with Sasha Eisenberg in the new issue. Josh, thanks for joining me on the show. Great to be with you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. John Domenico is, as always, our voice of Donald Trump. Boy, was he good at the live show we had in Anaheim at the Now Hear This podcast festival on Friday night. He killed it. And we have another live show coming up, our last one, which is our election night party with the gist at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Check, there might be a few tickets still available. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. I just want to let everyone at the Trump cast know I feel absolutely fantastic. I think this is going to turn the tide, this FBI thing with the disgusting, perverted Anthony Weiner. This guy's bad news. I've been saying this from the beginning. They should have taken that guy out. No, I'm not kidding. They should have took him out a long time ago. What an absolute fiasco for the Clinton campaign and for Huma, oh my God, this poor woman, I have to tell you, I love and respect women and I love and respect her. Even though she's my adversary, I feel very, very sorry for her. Anthony Weiner, disgusting pervert.